God's plan for a healthy church. We're today in our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we are in particular the glory of the gospel, and this is the second part of that glory of the gospel, the old covenant and the new. So last week we began our new section in this letter to the Corinthians found in chapter 3 verse 6, really starting there. And um, as we said last time, this section we started then, it really does not stand alone. In fact, it has ripples that go out, a firm understanding of the old and new covenant and of the glory of God really have ripples that go out through all of the scripture. This is part of a larger section, of course, of these letters and other books which explain salvation, the glory of the gospel, and the covenants. So we're going to continue to look at them today in order to help us understand what we see here. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, as is our habit. If you're new to us today, we're glad that you're here. We hope that's a blessing to you. We're going to pick up where we left off, but that doesn't mean you'll be lost. You will be uh, able to just join right in and, and have the Lord will speak to you. In fact, when you read the Word of God, as I said last week, it should always be in your mind, the Lord, teach me what you'd have me to know, help me to understand the things that are appropriate for me today, and help me to do them. That last part is so very important, so let me encourage you. Also, be in the Word uh, each week. You can find a be uh, in, the, in the Word together uh, calendar there on the, on the welcome table, or you can just read in your, on your digital copy somewhere, and they have Bible reading calendars, but make sure that you're in the Word each day. This is what the Lord planned for you to dig into the Word each day, to know what He would have to say, not just randomly opening your Bible, but reading through the Word cover to cover that you might gain a greater understanding of the depth uh, of and width of and height of what the Lord had and who He is and has planned for those who love Him and so, and for those who disobey Him. So that helps you as you, as you read the Word. Uh, beloved, I was, re, I was uh, encouraged about this again this week. As you read the Word each day, you do that over the course of your life, you begin to, deter, to be able to discern wrong doctrine from right. Uh, you don't have to think, oh, I wonder if that's right. You'll begin to know right away that it's right because, or wrong because you'll already know the passages in question and you'll be able to have read them over time. Uh, the Lord has been giving you his wisdom through his Holy Spirit and to be able to discern the things that are right and wrong, very important in today's culture. Let's read today, uh, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat in front of you or you can just read in your copy. I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. Verse 6 says, Who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses, because of the glory of his face fading as it was, verse 8, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Verse 9, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much... How much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? Verse 10, for indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Verse 12, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Verse 13, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, the passage is 
something special. And uh, Paul has uh, indicated a number of things here that I think are a blessing to us. Maybe at first read, as you read that, just thinking, man, this just doesn't seem to make sense, or it seems to be very stilted. Uh, and reading it through, of course, with, without grasping, I think, uh, what the Lord would have to say through Paul about the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, and the new covenant, and His glory, I think it can feel that way. I'm hoping, though, that as we go through, particularly as we started last time, uh, you know, that you will begin to see uh, how the glory is used here, and hopefully on the basis of last time, you'll understand uh, that word glory a little bit better. But 13 times we see in 13 verses the word glory. 13 verses uh, we see the word ministry used five times. He knows, uh, Paul knows this is something special. And in verse 12 he says, in 2 Corinthians 3.12, look there, he says this, Therefore we have uh, such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So Paul mentions this word glory 13 times, 13 verses. That's the Greek noun doxon. We looked at that. Um, and it's not just talking about outward splendor. It's not just something, talking about something that's beautiful or perhaps has some recognition. It's speaking about the attributes of God, each of which he has in perfection. And we looked at that last time, so we won't go through that again. So in other words, the attributes of God, every one that he has, is in perfection. It's the best it could possibly be. And last time we looked at Romans 11, and in verse 36, at the end of our time together, after listing off many marvelous attributes of God, that was one of the, it's one of those highlight passages. If you want to look at the attributes of God, that's a marvelous place to look. But in verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So he's the originator, that's for from him. He's the sustainer, that's through him. And he is the goal, the focus, the end, that's and to him of everything, ta panta, all things, that's the totality, that's really what that means. That's the scope of everything that God is involved with, everything. It's hard to get our minds around all that. It can refer to the universe. It can refer to the whole of creation. It can refer to all things concerning salvation, particularly here, that is Paul's, certainly his, his focus is included, as we've noted. And here at the end, it's just obvious now, isn't it, that in light of all of his perfections, it says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so everything God does, he does for his own glory. That's the word you fill in there. I think it's just obvious from the passages we've looked at and it's a very wonderful thing to think about. Everything God does, he does for his own glory. It's, it's to put his attributes on display. And in our passage, then, God's glory really is the overarching purpose in everything. Creation, salvation, condemnation, reconciliation, judgment. Everything, even to the mundane things of life, uh, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Even the mundane things of life, whatever it is, make God's attributes clear. So your mandate, of course, uh, along with the Great Commission, is to make God's attributes clear in what you do, uh, whatever it is, whether you eat or drink. But God's, uh, God's display of his glory is everywhere, right? Um, uh, the heavens de declare the glory of God. They're always telling us something about God's ma majesty, about his perfections uh, and in his ability. And so in our passage in 2 Corinthians 3.6, God's glory is attached to each of the statements that Paul makes. And we know that from creation, God's attributes were made visible. And we know that when he revealed his law to Moses, it revealed more of his attributes. And when Jesus was revealed and died and rose, he revealed uh, his attributes, and it was the pinnacle of his saving act. And it made his, his, uh, his glory look marvelous, his, his attributes of, of uh, the ability to save and his mercy and his forgiveness. And all those things were made to look marvelous in Jesus' death and his resurrection. And at least, and we see this, I think, for today, I think, at least nine times in our passage, Paul takes 
uh, he talks about the new covenant, and at least 10 times in our passage, he talks about the old covenant. And God's glory, I think we can understand this, God's glory uh, is attached to his works in both covenants. And as we have said, and, as, uh, and we're going to look and, and really begin our look at these covenants today, and I'll warn you ahead of time as we do this, that um, we are going to be in a number of different books and passages, which I think it would just be obvious if we're talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, it's going to take us a number of different places. And we're going to cover a lot of ground, and, and there's going to be a little shift uh, in the normal, uh, perhaps, way that we go about it. A lot more teaching, uh, less preaching, if you will, um, just because there's a lot of, of uh, groundwork to be laid here, and, but it's important groundwork. And now, back in 2 Corinthians 3.5, Paul makes this statement. And anytime I put this up, uh, you, you are welcome to look down at your word of God, whatever you're using. Uh, make sure that you see that and you're taking that in. Uh, verse 5 says, Now that we are adequate in ourselves, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider our, anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, he says, is from God. We looked at all of that. Who, here it is, who also made us adequate as servants of a, what? Of a new covenant. And so, uh, perhaps you're asking that question or you have asked a question when you see that. Exactly what is that? What, what are we talking about when he says he's made us adequate as servants of a new covenant? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So that's uh, the first thing. And so let's take a look at it. Luke 22, verse 20, a uh, very uh, wonderful passage. Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He's passing out the elements. And Luke reports to us that he says, and in the same way, he took the cup and after they had eaten, saying, so Luke is witnessing this, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing this down. And in the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And obviously what was, uh, uh, he, he was saying as he talks about the cup, uh, new covenant in his blood, is a metaphor. Uh, obviously, he hasn't drained any of his blood into the cup. So there's no transubstantiation. Uh, there's no um, Eucharist even implied there. Obviously, the, the disciples knew that Jesus hadn't cut a vein open and poured his blood in. And in no more than if he says, uh, the word is the seed, or if he said, my, my body is food. So again, uh, it's a metaphor, but making a point uh, that he wants them to understand there's something new going on here for them. Okay, And we'll see that God has planned this new covenant all along. But for them, this is something important. Matthew 26, verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And so then a little bit more of a dynamic there. Not only is his blood uh, the new covenant, it is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And then this is the same thing Paul passed down to the church in Corinth, which he said he heard from Jesus himself. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. he says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so there's a celebration to, that's supposed to go on, uh, an observance uh, that recognizes what has gone on here. And so he says, do this as oft as you do it in remembrance of me. So according to Jesus now, and as we see in Luke and Matthew, the new covenant is found in his blood, and through the shedding of his blood, through his death, it provides for what? For the forgiveness of sins. So when Paul says he's made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, he's talking about the proclamation of Jesus' death and his shedding of his blood and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. Okay? So... Paul refers to it in our passage not only as the new covenant, he calls it the ministry of the Spirit in verse 8. 
He calls it the ministry of righteousness. Now, perhaps you, 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 you keyed on those as we went through that passage reading it just a minute ago. But he calls it the ministry of righteousness in verse 9. He calls it the surpassing covenant in verse 10. He calls it the covenant that remains in verse 11. He calls it uh, turning to the Lord in verse 16. Paul calls it liberty in verse 17. And finally, he refers to it as being transformed in verse 18. All ways of referring to this new covenant. And as he uses those words, that gives us clues both to the nature of the new covenant and the nature of the old covenant. And we'll see some of that as we begin to flesh that out. Now, we're going to see the old covenant, which Paul says displays the glory of God, pointed to the Savior. And, and all the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law and the washings and the circumcision and the Ten Commandments, they all, in the midst of the glory of God that they revealed, pointed towards the reality of a new covenant. The whole time that they're going through all of this, and we'll talk about that a little bit more and get into some passages that can help reinforce that for you. And although they are valid and they're real and they were required, these sacrifices and all the obeying of the law and all that stuff, and relevant, they were symbols. And the symbol isn't the means of salvation. The symbol pointed to the means of salvation. Now, it's, it's, it's likely that Paul was bringing this up now, and, uh, and there are a number of places we can to, to uh, look to help us understand the difference between the Old and New Covenant. And Paul's going to explain why he needs to talk about this uh, soon, and we'll look at that. But uh, these are doctrinal issues, and they're very foundational for us. And so we'll take some time with them, and perhaps most of them will not be new to you. But maybe, as we introduce it, there will be some connection and more awareness, as I said just a minute ago, of the cohesiveness of the Old and New Testament. That really is, I think, my desire today is to connect some things perhaps that you have not connected or to reinforce those connections as you made those touches already. So we won't go through every detail of everything. Any number of these passages we could speak on for a number of weeks just to make sure we grasp and glean out from them everything that the Holy Spirit would have us know. But we won't go through every detail, but we will touch on enough to help us understand Paul's emphasis here. And perhaps that's why he is dealing with it. And so again, there are lots of places where we can get some wonderful illustrations as the Bible explains the Bible on the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But Hebrews is one of those marvelous places where we see it quite often. Now Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 is one of those places and a number of other places in Hebrews. And we're going to look at them as well. But I'd like you to turn there. And you can hold your finger here if you'd like. But it'll be a while before we get back. So you're welcome to just flip on over to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. I want you to really see this. Make some notes in the margin of your Bible or there at the bottom of your, of your tablet or whatever you can write in there. Uh, things that can help you and, be, and encourage you as you understand these things. So, here the writer of Hebrews is speaking of Jesus. And he just got through talking about it. You can read this on your own time. He just got through talking about the, the sacrificial system and all that went on beforehand. And, and uh, what went on in the temple and in the tabernacle and all of that. And so, he comes here and then he says this. And this is relevant for us today. So, we'll pick up here. But now he, speaking of Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Let's stop right there. First of all, uh, Hebrews says the new covenant is what? It says it is a better covenant. Why? Why is it a better covenant? Well, because it was, has better, a better mediator, and that's Jesus. So the new covenant, as we saw, is the covenant in Jesus' blood. Mediator, that's the Greek noun, mesites, someone who goes between. That's someone who reconciles. So to be a good mediator or a reconciler, they would have to equally represent 
both sides. We see this a lot in sports and, and a number of other places, but a good mediator equally represents both sides of the issue. And now, as you know, there were mediators in the Old Covenant. Moses was certainly a mediator. Uh, we, you know, Paul uses Moses as the main illustration in our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He came between man and God. And in that sense, the prophets were mediators because they were spoken to by the Lord and, and then passed that word on to the people. So they served as a mediator of sorts. Uh, the priests were certainly mediators because they ministered before the Lord on behalf of the people. So they went in and they, and they took care of the sacrifice. And once a year in the Holy of Holies, took care of the sacrifice. But Paul calls that ministry the ministry of death in our passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And he calls it uh, the ministry of condemnation in chapter 3, verse 9. So although it still puts some of the attributes of the Lord, of the Lord on display, there was a problem with those mediators. What was it? Well, they didn't adequately and equally represent both sides, did they? You know, Moses was a man. He wasn't God, right? The prophets were men, but they weren't God. The priests were men, and they weren't God. A perfect mediator between God and man would have to be what? Man and God. And we know someone like that, don't we? So it isn't that men were not true mediators. They were. And they gave us a, they gave us a picture of what that looks like. They, weren't, they, they were just a shadow. They were a symbol pointing to what was to come. They just came up short to the task because they didn't really represent God. But Jesus does both. So he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So the first one had some problems, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says next. And you can look there in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, just pause right there. Was the fault in God's plan? Absolutely not. What does it say next in verse 8? For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now pause right there. So there's coming a new covenant because men didn't keep the old covenant, see? But it still revealed God's glory, and it was still part of the plan, the symbol to point towards the new covenant. But there were some problems, and the big problem was men. Now, Romans chapter 7, verse 6, gives a glimpse of that. Paul uses some anecdotal evidence here, not that that makes it uh, not true, but he uses himself as an example of the real problem uh, with men and the old covenant and the law. And he says in verse 6, he says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we, were, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Verse 7. Is the law sin? So is there some problem with God's old covenant? Was there something, some problem with the law? Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So here Paul says, listen, this is the real problem with the law. Not the law itself. It's not sin. It's, it's from God. It's perfect. The problem is with me. Because if the, he said, Paul says this, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, here's the fall of the first covenant, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So is the problem God's? No. But can you see what God's trying to do here? He's setting his law up here and he's saying, okay, now let's begin to evaluate ourselves compared to my holy law. 
At some point in time, the standard has to be set, right? God has to say, this is perfection, so obey my law. So is God just kind of randomly saying, well, let's just toss out the old covenant. We won't worry about it. It was a bad, it was a bad plan anyway. You know, kind of like us, you know, we, we make a plan and we start working the plan. We're thinking, no, this, this, plan, this plan stinks. All right, let's make a new plan. Let's modify our plan. God's not doing that, okay? So don't, don't imagine that kind of somehow that's what God's doing. Okay, this didn't work. Now I've got to think of something else. We're going to see that God had planned all along how this was supposed to work. But here Paul makes it clear, okay, what's, where's the problem? It's not in the old covenant. The problem is with men. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, you, you have no idea that you've messed up if you don't have the law to compare what, what you really have messed up in. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for who? For me and you and Paul. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And I know you know this, but I just want to confirm that you know, it's not just kind of a random plan that had some faults. The fault was with men, but that was precisely God's plan. Okay? Now, back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, speaking of the new covenant. But now, look there if you would, in your copy of God's word, for now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, as, as much as he is also the mediator of the better covenant, which had been enacted on better promises. So first of all, Hebrews says the new covenant is what? A better covenant. Why? It has better mediator. This covenant doesn't require men. Uh, we don't need Moses. We don't need the prophets. We don't need the priests. We don't need saints. We don't need Mary. We don't need the Pope to intervene for us. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Paul makes it clear. One mediator being taught God and man. Who is that? That's Jesus. Okay? So the one who serves as the go-between is the one who paid the price for the infractions, just as a footnote. And that, put, that, that infraction put enmity between God and man and required a need for a mediator, and the one who paid the price is the mediator. So what a marvelous thing that we have uh, sitting at the right hand of God, constantly making intercession for us. So in this new covenant, which Paul identifies in 2 Corinthians 3 as the ministry of the Spirit, in verse 8, he also tells us that the Lord is the Spirit in verse 17. So we don't have to go looking for the Lord. He resides in each and every believer, and that, uh, that's the part, that's his next point in Hebrews. Look at verse 6. tells us, he says this, not only is it a better covenant, but it's better because it has a better mediator and it has uh, better promises. Better promises. Now, the old covenant had promises. And they were conditional. Remember them? The Israelites were required to love God and keep his law. And in return, he promised to protect and bless them. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, right? See, I have set before you uh, today life and prosperity and death and adversity. What do you mean by that? Well, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So I've set before you life, and I've set before you death and adversity. How will you have life and prosperity? Well, you're going to have that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The whole idea of the great commandment is, is kind of captured right here when it's first set before uh, Israel. It says, you know, love your Lord your God, walk in his ways, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. So, 
Later, as Samuel the prophet, again, a type of mediator, a shadow, not the reality, addresses Israel. He confirms these promises of the Old Covenant. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, he says this, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. So again, there were promises in the Old Covenant. And they revealed the glory of God. Namely, his holiness and his righteousness, also his faithfulness and his mercy, and we could just go on. So there were promises in the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant was better because it had better promises. Uh, the New Covenant makes a better promise. You know what it is? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's a better promise, isn't it? That's a pretty wonderful promise. No more continual sacrifices over and over that could never take away sin. No more reading of the law, but never being able to obey it perfectly. See, And this is the promise that God made long ago in the midst of their disobedience and in the midst of their chastening. And quoting Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 10, 16 says this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law on their heart and on their mind I'll write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the once for all sacrifice of Jesus takes away the need for the continual offering of animals in the sacrificial system, which never took away sin. See? But this ministry of death put God's glory on display, didn't it? Because the continual, catch this, beloved, the continual death of millions of animals made something very clear. What was it? The depth and the seriousness of sin. It showed how bad sin really is, and it showed it over and over. The payment required for offending a holy God. And, and, are, and you're never going to be holy by obeying the law, says the Lord, but at least you'll know how desperately wicked you are and how utterly sinful sin is. So it's not God saying, oh, this is a crummy plan. Let me, just, let me, let me revamp it a little bit, make it a little bit better. No, the Lord's saying, listen, this was part of the plan, but this old covenant was a way to bring you to understanding that you needed to be in order to understand that you needed salvation from me. And we're going to see that more clearly here in just a minute. So in the middle of their chastening and the plunder of the land that the Lord had given them, so the Lord gives them this land. He says, you know, love me, obey my commands, do what I say, you'll prosper, I'll bless you. They didn't. So in the middle of all the chastening, he's taking the land away from them. He's kicking them out of the land. In the middle of all that plunder and all that, the carrying off of the people to slavery to Babylon, through the mouth of Jeremiah, again, a type of mediator, a shadow of the real mediator to come, God says this in Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of that land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. And just in case you were thinking that God was some kind of standoff God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, just waiting for somebody to 
and messed up so he could open up the land and let them be swallowed up or do something to them with a flood or with, a, with, with some kind of judgment. He says, no, I, I led them by the hand out of Egypt and I was a what? I was a husband to them. He went before them and he was behind them and he gave them his law. Could they keep it? No. Did they even want to keep it? No. But it made something pretty clear. They couldn't keep it. See, they couldn't keep it. And all those millions of animals that got sacrificed was just an indication of just how desperately sinful sin is. See, but even way back in Jeremiah, in the midst of the chastening, in the midst of the carrying off to Babylon and all that, he says, listen, there's going to come a day where it won't be like this. Okay? There's going to come a day where I'm going to be pouring my wrath on you. And we know who he poured his wrath on, don't we? So it's not just God tossing out the plan saying, okay, let's make a new one. Don't worry about whatever happened before. It's not always going to be like it is now, he says. But by one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, once and for all, he'll wipe out all our sin forever. And God will remember our sin no more. And that's a better promise, isn't it? The complete once for all forgiveness of sin through the blood of one sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Old Covenant... The Israelites were required to obey God and keep the law, and in return, he protected and blessed them. In the new covenant then, just to kind of sum this up, things change and God becomes the proactive and unconditional source of salvation and blessing. In the new covenant, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. In other words... You can't become righteous on your own, but God can make you righteous through the one sacrifice of Jesus and the blood that was shed. So first of all, Hebrews says there's a new covenant, and it is a what? It's a better covenant. Why? Well, it has better mediator, and it has better promises. Now, two things to notice about this new covenant from verse 10. Look there in Hebrews 8, 10, if you would. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, make no mistake, so we don't misunderstand this, this new covenant is still with Israel. Okay? So, don't transplant the church in there. Okay? He's not talking to the church. And in that respect, only, it's like the old covenant. The, old, the new covenant is still with Israel. And it's important to note, because the scripture doesn't teach us replacement theology, okay? Men teach us that. That somehow the church replaces Israel. The writer of Hebrews verifies it in verse 8. He says, with the house of Israel, with the house later of Judah, the ones I took out of Egypt. See. And then again, right here, so there can be really no doubt. And as a footnote, it's important to mention that God has never made a covenant with the Gentiles, ever. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. But the fact that he never made a covenant with the Gentiles doesn't leave Gentiles, that's non-Jews, out, does it? When God called Abraham out of Haran, he made a promise way back then before the giving of the law in Genesis 22, verse 18. And he says this, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God had a plan for the salvation of all men, even back in the old covenant. That hasn't changed, see? 
He just planned to use Israel to bring it about. And he will fulfill that promise fully in the future using Israel to bring about salvation. And if you were with us in a Revelation study, you know there's a large number of Jews that are going to go out, aren't there? 144,000. So God will fulfill his promises. But in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, and many other places we see this, and, and, and many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain to, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go out forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Just talking about a future time in, in the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ where everyone will seek uh, to know, and, and it always will come from there, from Jerusalem. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 illustrates that, that for us further. And you remember perhaps long ago when we went through this passage, but this is such a great passage as Paul goes through uh, the condemnation of all people, people who think they're righteous, people who are wicked, and then people who are Jews uh, who thought that they were uh, worthy somehow of God's uh, salvation just on the merit of being a Jew. And Paul says this in verse 1, he says, What advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? And of course, if you looked at the history of the Jews, you would have to say, not much. Right? doesn't look like it was too beneficial to them. I mean, if you just look through, back through world history, it's pretty tough to think that somehow there was benefit, but there was. Okay, marvelous benefit. And, and so Paul answers that. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the, the oracles of God. Verse 3, what then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, that God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, so they were entrusted with the oracles of God, God's very words. What advantage is a Jew? Great in every way. God spoke to them first and gave them his oracles. And if some didn't believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Does it somehow make God's covenant and God's plan uh, of none effect or bad? No, not at all. May it never be. Rather, that God be found true and every man be found a liar. So the old covenant came through Israel and the new covenant comes through Israel. See? Gentiles can enter in the new covenant by faith. The messianic line came through Israel. The Messiah came through Israel. The whole plan came through Israel. The message of the prophets came through Israel. And the priesthood was the Levitical priesthood out of the loins of Abraham. So this letter to the Galatians deals with this issue in Galatians 3.21. Again, I told you we'd be in a lot of different places. But as we kind of track on the new covenant, I think it's important to understand how this whole thing was from the very beginning, and how God has transitioned our understanding to where it is now. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? In other words, was the first covenant somehow uh, at odds with what God's doing now? May it never be. And, and now we get a snapshot a little bit of why the law was there and what God was planning all along. He says this, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. In other words, the, the law was given and no one could keep it. So everybody, what, is at the same starting point, completely bankrupt. See? So the scripture shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But faith, but before faith came, kept, now catch this, this is so marvelous, it's a snapshot right into, uh, as Paul's carried along to, as he writes this letter to the Galatians, it gives us a snapshot right into the mind of God, and, and we get to see just, just very small, uh, uh, just a sketch of what God was doing. Before faith came, we were kept custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which is later to be revealed. In other words, it was our keeper. The law kept us shut up in sin, it was, it was, it was uh, the nanny, if you will, the under custody. 
until that which the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now you can see in this letter to the Galatians, he has to deal with this, uh, the works of the law somehow justifying the people. And it's no different in Corinth. So we're going to see in just a little while, a couple weeks, we're going to see why Paul had to go through all of this and kind of compare it to today and the nature of Christianity even as it grows old perhaps and waxes a little bit, becomes more steeped in what would be tradition instead of the faith that's simple that comes by belief in Christ. And so there's, there's a lot of things here that Paul's going to talk about. We won't talk about them here. But just because the new covenant is with Israel, it doesn't mean everyone else is left out. No way. Because God used this as to keep everyone in custody in the law, and the law has become our tutor. Now, uh, on in uh, Galatians in chapter 3, verse 7, therefore be sure that it is, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So in other words, just because there's a new covenant with Israel doesn't mean anybody else is left out, okay? Uh, how do you become a son of, a son of Abraham? Well, it's always still referring to Abraham, isn't it? How do you become a son of Abraham? Well, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all, and here's the one we just read, all the nations will be blessed in you, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Just in case you thought we pulled that out of the hat, and it was we were in that verse. That's precisely what Paul says to the Galatians, God was saying when he spoke to Abraham the first time, I'm going to use you to bring people to me. Except Israel didn't do a very good job of that. And we certainly don't want to be in, in, uh, in the church age to be a church who are not doing a very good job of bringing people to Christ either, do we? Which is why next week we're going to have the Go Mad training to teach you how to do that, okay? Now, considering that Paul is writing this 2 Corinthians letter to a Gentile church, obviously... The Gentiles get to get in on this new covenant. Otherwise, what would be the point of talking about this at all with them? Except that God's plan is continuous. And he started it in a certain way, and he gave it to us for a certain purpose. And it has, he has revealed over the ages how he was planning to bring us to Christ. Okay? Now, right now, in fact, and if you think about the Gentiles, of course, and you think about the covenant that comes through Israel, right now, there are more Gentiles in the new covenant than there are Jews. Right? I mean, that's just reality. Because the Jews rejected the Messiah. And, and on the whole, there's only a remnant of Jews that are truly born again in this church age. So may, way more Gentiles in the New Covenant than Jews because the Jews rejected and continue to reject the Messiah. So, but Romans tells us there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved and they will be partakers of this New Covenant. Now, just a couple more things that we, we still have time for concerning the New Covenant from Hebrews 8. And hopefully you're this is as fun for you as it was for me to kind of put this together this week because this just connects so many things for you. And I'm sure that nothing here is new, but perhaps some of the connections will be reinforced. As you've made these touches, you'll begin to be reinforced with these connections. So look in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Again, this is just obvious from what we've read already. Hebrews 8, 10 says this. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, again, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, um, after these days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the old covenant was set of external regulations and upon Jesus' death and resurrection, the external regulations gave way to internal change of heart. The new covenant is an internal change of heart, which is why Paul calls it turning to Jesus. He calls it liberty. He calls it all kinds of things in our passage in 2 Corinthians 3. 
an internal change of heart. That's the new covenant is an internal, it's internal, not external. It's an internal change of heart. Now, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, illustrates that for us. Again, uh, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord. So I'm not going to boast in my keeping of the law. I'm not going to boast in how holy I am, how much I know the Mosaic law, and how, how I try to keep that. I'm not boasting in any of those things, Paul says. I'm not boasting in my education. I'm not boasting in my knowledge of, of theology. I'm not going to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, see? And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, and so again, it isn't that God's just saying, you know, this, this plan stinks, let's just toss it out, we'll start with something else, don't worry about it. It's not that at all, see. The old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. That's really our next step. All the external regulations and requirements of the law, Matthew 5, 17, don't think Jesus says that I came to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So God's not tossing the plan out. He's not saying, okay, my law wasn't important, and my law wasn't holy. It was a bad plan. You couldn't keep it. My bad. Let me try something else. Say, no, absolutely. My law was perfect. It did exactly what it was supposed to do, and we have to fulfill all its requirements. And so Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says of himself, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So do you have to fulfill them now? No, because Christ came, and what did he do? He fulfilled them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And again, later the writer of Hebrews clarifies this point for us even further. In Hebrews 10.1, he says, For the law, since it's only a shadow, and we said this right at the beginning, the shadow is not the reality, right? Covenant theology, keeping the covenant, that's not, that's not the reality. That is the shadow. For the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Even when you came and did the sacrifice, it never made you perfect, see? And that's what's required. You have to be perfect, don't you? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins? Paul says, listen, if, if it could make you perfect, wouldn't they have stopped by now? Because, you know, they got there. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he, this is speaking of Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. So Jesus took on human flesh, became the perfect mediator in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it's written of me, to do your will, O God. The law is only the shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality of the things themselves. Jesus takes all the law and all the requirements and takes it on himself and says, this is the body you've prepared for me. I'm going to be the mediator and I'm going to be the one who fulfills the law. My death is going to be required. And Colossians 2.16 clarifies that for us. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge through regard to food or to drink or to respect to festivals or new moons or Sabbath day. See, those are all the rules and all the regulations under the Old Covenant. And they were only, verse 17, things which are a mere shadow. And again, the shadow is not the substance of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. See? And finally, we should also notice, and this is just obvious, 
that the new covenant replaces the old covenant. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. It's obvious, but we need to say it because there seems to be so much confusion about this today. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. This is not in addition to what I said before, then add this to the pile, okay? And we're going to look at our last passage of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Look there if you would. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and going old is ready to disappear. So in the old covenant, God established that the way to atone for sin is through the shedding of blood. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, again, marvelous passage because it takes in so much of this. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. You could almost say that according to the law. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, this whole plan of the, of the old covenant, it wasn't something new. In heaven, there was an altar and a holy of holies and everything set up. And when the plan for building those things was given to Moses, if you remember this, the Lord said, be careful to build exactly like I tell you to do it. Why? Because it was only a copy of the real one that was in heaven. And that's where Jesus went and made the sacrifice for sin once for all. See? The old covenant led us that way, kept us custody. It was our tutor and brought us along to understand how sinful and desperately wicked sin is and how, how uh, desperately wicked we are and how we couldn't keep the law and we couldn't be perfect. And all along, God's planning on bringing Jesus to manifest once and for all what keeping the law looks like, fulfilling it all in himself and sacrificing himself for us. And that blood wasn't in the Holy of Holies in the, on the earth. It was in the Holy of Holies in heaven itself. That's why the Last Supper on the night of his arrest, Jesus, as we go back to what we looked at first, passed the cup to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hadn't even happened yet. But Peter says, slain before the foundation of the world, already in the works, already planned, set up to bring us along as, it, as we should be brought along. So when Jesus was crucified, his blood provided for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. That's the basis of the new covenant. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one, it says, obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Salvation is now a free gift for any who will believe in Christ and trust that his blood takes away their guilt before God. That's John 3, 16 and 17. That's the whole point of it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but the world will be saved through him. And as we saw just a second ago in the Old Covenant, the only the high priest could enter the most holy place where God's presence dwelt, and that only once a year, but by calling it new, he's made the first one obsolete, and under the new covenant, Jesus is our high priest. 
and the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ. And Hebrews 10, 19 tells us this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, So even while the old covenant stood, God had already planned the new covenant. And the two worked together to show people their need for God and then to fulfill that need. See. The Old Covenant required people to please God, but no one could measure up to perfection, and the Old Covenant resulted in a string of failures. And Romans 3.20 tells us that through the law, we become conscious of our sins. See, the Old Covenant establishes our guilt before God and our need for a Savior, and the Old Covenant was never intended to save us. And this is why we see this first, this first verse of our passage in 2 Corinthians 3.6, we also, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The New Translation, New Living Translation says this this way. I love it. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And we can begin to see why Paul refers to this new covenant as the ministry of the Spirit in verse 8, and the ministry of righteousness in verse 9, and, and surpassing covenant in verse 10, and the covenant that remains in verse 11, and turning to the Lord in verse 16, and liberty in verse 17, and finally, as being transformed in verse 18. All those words describe the relationship you can have through Christ to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's the new covenant, and that's the great confidence Paul has in that. Why does he have confidence? Well, because it's not there's not going to be anything that you're going to be required to do except believe that God has sent his son Jesus and who has died on the cross and shed his blood. That's the new covenant. That you can be saved. And that blood takes away your sin. So Paul can be confident. He can be confident in you. He can be confident in me and everybody who reads this from that time on that they can be saved. It's not required their keeping of the law. It's not required that they do some good things in a row. It's not required that they do all these, keep the high feast and, and all that. It's not required. That's all taken care of. Fulfilled in Christ. You receive the new covenant, belief in Christ. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you today for a marvelous time in your word. We thank you for uh, Christ, who is the pinnacle of uh, your saving act, a resurrection uh, from his death. Lord, what a marvelous thing to think about. And all these things uh, were completed. And Christ is saying it is finished. So simple of words, but so much in them. All the things you had planned came to fruition. So foolish to think somehow we can uh, somehow earn your favor by being good or keeping some certain law or whatever. We have Christ now who has paid all that price. He's taken everything that was against us and it's been nailed to the cross. All paid in full. And now we have the resident Holy Spirit in us. And for the first time in our life, we can... We can uh, look at the Word of God and see what you require and, and know that we can obey because your Holy Spirit rides in it, resides in us and we have the joy of doing it. To walk in obedience to you. And Lord, we thank you for that price. And Lord, as we've made that very clear, maybe there's somebody sitting in here who've never, never really understood what it meant to trust Christ as their Savior. Well, you've made it pretty clear today. It's not required that you be good. It's not required that you reform yourself. It's not somehow a requirement that you get your act together and then uh, God will accept you. God will accept you, not because you're good and not because you've got your act together, not because you figured it all out, but because Christ came and fulfilled the entire thing and paid for it for you on the cross. And he offers it to you for free if you'll believe.
And you can do that right where you sit. Confess in your heart that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in, but believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And confess through the mouth uh, that he is Lord and that he is uh, risen. And Lord, you, you will come to faith uh, right then. Confess through the mouth Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because everything is summed up in that. He came for the reason he, he said he came. He did what he came to do. And God was pleased with the whole thing. Fulfilled all of his plan. And all throughout the ages as he revealed himself little by little and his glory was in everything that he revealed. It, it took care of all of that and came up to this. In the fullness of time, Christ came. What a marvelous thing. Confess with your mouth today, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Delivered from constant desire to be good and try to do good and letting yourself down over and over again. You know what? Christ was good. And you receive the benefit of his goodness. Christ was perfect and obeyed the law and you get the benefit of that. See, And you confess and believe. Lord, thank you for accomplishing by your word everything that you say you would accomplish. Thank you for doing what you say you do every time the word is taught. Lord, I pray that you make it clear in the hearts of each believer here what they should do. If they followed you in salvation, they need to follow you in baptism, and maybe that's what you need to do. So before you leave, if you confess Christ as your Savior today, take that response card. Before you go, fill that out. Say, I, I pray to receive Christ as my Savior today. Let us, let us get together with you. Let me pray for you. Uh, let me put in your hands things that can help you grow, get you discipled so you can understand just this marvelous thing now that you have benefit of, which is this relationship to God through Jesus. If you need to follow in baptism, then you need to, you need to do that. That is the next step. The first step of obedience is to follow in baptism. And so if you need to do that, indicate that on your card as you respond. Uh, hand those to me before you go. Be a joy to talk to you or leave it behind on your seat. We'll get it. Um, whatever it is the Lord has spoken to you about, if he's encouraged you, uh, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you will multiply those things, help them to grow and understand more about your marvelous plan for them. And pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.